Broadcasting live from Beef Station, orbiting high above planet Earth. Back with you for another week is me, Oscar. Andrew. And special guest this week, Patrick. Hey. Say hello. There we how go. You do- how you hey, doing? Pal. All right, I'll say hello. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah, come so on, clap. What is this? Episode <laughs> six? Episode seven? Ah, uh, six. Okay, cool. Wait, <laughs> no, shit. Episode seven. Seven? Episode seven. seven. Welcome <laughs> to episode seven of Beef Station. <laughs> Today we're talking about Sicario, the first yeah. one, which came out in 2015. Yeah. And Sicario 2, which just came out this week, 2018, we're in now. Correct. Straight out of the gate, we thought we'd talk briefly about both of these films. Um, so <laughs> so y'all out there over the airwaves know what we're talking about. Yeah. Sicario came out in 2015, 2015. starring Benicio Del Toro, Josh Brolin, and Emily Blunt. Yep. It was direct... <laughs> you got a fucking hype man I'm over here. I'm fact-checking you. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> what up? What up? What up? <laughs> so, so Sicario, the first one, was directed by um, Dennis Patty. How do you pronounce that? Danny Villeneuve. Danny Villeneuve. Denny. Okay, yep. cool. Um, he directed Arrival, Prisoners, Blade Runner 2049. Fuck yeah. So he's had a couple pretty big films, but mm. I think that this might be one of the lesser known ones that he's done, right? It was also like, uh, uh, does it does it feel like he's hit a, his stride in the last two years yeah, or so? Yeah, I mean like yeah. after he did Blade, 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 Blade Runner, Runner 2049. Yeah. yeah, so Blade Runner came out after Sicario. This one was in yeah. 2015. But yeah. um, Arrival also came out before Blade Runner 2049. And I feel like... <laughs> <laughs> now that we've got our chronology and all that. No, but I feel like uh, Arrival... Put it up on the pin board, dude. This is <laughs> Arrival, yeah, I've got the red string connecting everything. <laughs> Arrival was incredibly well received. Mm. So I feel like that yeah. really gave him some... Um, yeah, some traction, I guess. Yeah, he's so, definitely one of my favorite he, filmmakers. 100%. Yeah, and 100%. he had a really interesting kind of. Oh, we, so we can so we can talk about it. This, he worked with the cinematographer, the same cinematographer that he worked mm. on for Blade, Blade Runner mm. twenty forty nine, and I think also Arrival. His name's I've written it down here somewhere. Roger Deakin. Roger yeah, Deakin. Yeah, yeah. Was, so Roger Won Deakin. Actor for Blade Runner, I think. Uh, the Oscar for Blade Runner. Yeah. Was <laughs> it through you that I was sitting right here? <laughs> yeah. So um, I went with yeah. a word that was neither of the correct names. So <laughs> the cinematographer for Sicario has worked with this guy before. He's yeah. had 14 Oscar nominations for Best Cinematography over the yeah, years. He yeah. finally won for Blade Runner it's last like year. worse than Leo. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he's, yeah. So he's been... Yeah, I don't think Leo's cinematography is that good at all. He's been in the industry since... He's been in the industry since the 80s. He's done loads of films with the Coen brothers. He did the cinematography for Shawshank Redemption. Fuck, I'm just looking. Um, he's Fargo, also... Big Lebowski. Skyfall as well. Yeah, yeah, he was yeah, just like Skyfall. my favorite James Bond film because it has Sam inc- Mendes. Yeah, it has some incredible like light and dark in yep. that film. Yep, yeah, it does, really oh, does. Man, he does both kinds, light and dark. <laughs> uh, but so, only one at a time. Yeah. <laughs> so Sicario one. Um, Emily Blunt is the main character, I'd say, right? And it sort of follows her story. She plays um... this FBI agent, Kate. Yeah. And at the start of the film, it opens up with Kate and the other character, Daniel. The actor's name is Daniel. He's the guy from Get Out. Yeah, yeah Daniel yeah, yeah. Aluya. I think so. So, yeah, um, Daniel Kaluuya. So, um, so, they're, so they're both kind of like a SWAT team and they're doing raids on cartel safe houses and that kind of thing. Yeah. And the, the shot that this film opens with is them doing a raid on some safe house and they find all these drugs and all these bodies. Yeah, because they they're, they're looking for hostages. And so then the idea of the film is they want to track down where all these bodies and drugs and stuff are coming from. And they want to they pin down one of these head cartel leaders. Mm. And so they um, put a task force together that Josh Brolin asks her to join he's headed up yeah um so Je- josh brolin's like caa or something and she asks he asks her to join and it's not entirely clear why yeah has it ever firmly established what no, josh brolin uh, yeah is? no i was just about to ask yeah. that question i think it's actually left ambiguous yeah yeah so he's sort of like the I mean, play and dirty military dog yeah. that the u.s yeah. and caa are kind of getting to do their over the border yeah shady shit yeah and so she's sort of along for this ride crossing the border between texas and mexico tracking down these cartel guys and so it's it's like a thriller kind of action kind of thing but i think it's it's fair to say that in the same way as when you know when the, those trailers for Drive came out and it looked like it was going to be the Fast and the Furious yeah, and it was a lot yeah, more sort yeah. of pulled back and dramatic and subtle I think this film definitely feels that same kind of way where if you're expecting like an action all out cop shooter kind of film it's not really that is it well I, I, yeah I feel like there's a part of that film that does want to be that I mean yeah Taylor Sheridan wrote the screenplay right yeah. and yeah he's like Sons of Anarchy like created Sons mm. of Anarchy yeah, I ha- thought this film if you have you guys heard of Machete the film yeah the, yeah starring that guy <laughs> yeah um, I thought this was going to be like that the, the jungle path clearing implement yeah yeah Yeah. so when did you did you just see it this Friday yeah or? oh yeah, really that was the first time I watched oh, it oh yeah. man so I watched them within yeah. 20, 24 48 hours of each other yeah mm. okay 
Oh, damn. Yeah. No, I saw it in 2015. Wait, back in 2015? Yeah, right. Back in 2015. And Good year. And All those years like, ago. <laughs> I've only watched... I watched, like, a little bit of it before just to, like, acclimatize myself to watch the sequel. Yeah. And, um, oh, that so was a bad it move. Felt, Season the synapses. It felt, like, weird watching it again after the Trump election. It just feels like a lot of it had become, like... A lot more relevant. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And yeah. that's why I really wanted to see this film and, and talk mm. to you guys about it because I feel like there's a lot of relevance. Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting seeing how it compared to, like, the pre-Trump administration kind of US influence versus like Obama drone strike era yeah, yeah, yeah. you know engagement of, of yeah. military well, surveillance and stuff it's definitely been a hot topic for a while then yeah. I, think. I, I, yeah, I think it's easy sure. to probably contextualize this across any presidency probably mm. but um and so Emily Blunt gets drawn into this sort of this this team of people that are going across the border to find these cartel guys Benicio Del Toro and Josh Brolin are sort of working together in this team and it's not entirely yep. clear who they're with or what their, real, what their agenda is and so you're sort of kept in a bit of mystery as Emily Blunt trying to work out like why the fuck have I been asked along yeah. to this mission mm. yeah. and they're sort of not really telling her anything and they're both great in it I thought Del Toro, right. Del Toro and Braylon yeah yeah so they're both, they're both great in it yeah. I thought but it's really interesting to sort of so you're sort of seeing most of the, the first part of the film from Emily Blunt's point of view yep. mm. and taking yep. it all in that way I think that something that's really interesting is I was watching an interview earlier today with um, Denis and someone asked him about he, I think I think him and the cinematographer have a bit of a background in documentaries and that he they sort of asked oh, how did that influence your film and he was saying mm. that they really tried to in the setting up shot particularly when they're driving through Juarez for the first time and it shows all these shots of the city and kind of the slums mm. yeah, yeah fuck that was a good yeah good so scene. he was saying they yeah. were trying to be as authentic and natural as possible in the way mm. they depicted the story because they hoped that that would kind of add to the suspense mm. yeah right and you really get that idea of suspense yeah, I from think the so. film Specifically talking about the um the first one, I think they do a, a pretty good job of establishing that. I, I got real um it's, it was really going to shine through how little I know what I'm talking about here, but I got a real <laughs> like Black Hawk Down kind of like Iraq War sort of yeah, vibe when they were yeah. driving through the it, favela. It does feel like yeah. a war film. Yeah, it does. Yeah, and it was like you know one of those things where they're they're like keeping in the you know they're driving through like two stories worth of close dense houses and they just have to check like every fucking window mm. and every level that there's going to be someone that's just waiting to ambush them. Yeah. It's very Hurt Locker. Yeah. yeah that was the other the same The same kind of thing, totally. yeah. yeah. But it's that kind of theater of war mm. um, in that. Mm. It's funny how much they make Mexico look like the Middle East. Yeah. Which I think is a super interesting yeah. thing. Uh, and that'll um, that'll come into play a lot more in, in talking about the second one, I think. But, yeah. But it was interesting, yeah, because it's, it's not really a, a war movie, mm. but everything about it would lead you to kind of believe that it should be or is. Yeah, I also think, like, reading a little bit about this film again before I've watched it again, people were talking about how... It's it's sort of almost an indictment on like the militarization of like the police force in America as well. But watching it, I didn't really get that impression. Like no. you kind of, you see the incredible amount of firepower these people have. But yeah. Yeah. And the, and the permission that they're given to do. Whatever. Yeah. Like there's that whole scene where they're, they're pulling up alongside the cartels in their little sedan try, on the way to cross the border. Mm. And they're just scene. like waiting with yeah. these machine guns pointed at these guys, waiting for them to pull a pistol so they mm. can just mow them down. Yeah. And they do yeah. immediately yeah. sort of get this, they're sort of, they're sort of baiting the cartel guys to go for their guns so they can shoot them because mm. they've got to sort of respond. Yeah. And they sort of go, oh fuck. Yeah. And they've got yeah. that, like, they've got that police attitude, that like classic police line of like, you just match the escalation of violence. You mm. don't escalate actively yeah, but yeah um, it's pretty yeah, clear yeah. that like they're um, you know they're as as ready as they can possibly be to escalate <laughs> that violence if they need to so well, that's yeah a, that's another thing that i really love about um villeneuve's depictions of violence in his films as well yeah because that scene is incredibly violent but you still get a real sense of like you know this is happening on the front of civilians and like these guys are basically civilians as well yeah yeah and yeah, yeah it, i think like just as they drive away it pans to like this teenage boy and his mom just like looking just at watching. the corpses yeah yeah as yeah. well which yep. yeah I, I didn't get a lot of that in the sequel no know. exactly so that so i i brought that up that feeling of authenticity and um for that exact reason because it feels so different from the sequel yeah um because in this first one he said he really tried hard to get this authentic to of the military and Mexican culture and all of that so that you could really understand and really feel the tension and really sort of follow along as the story comes together f for that exact reason. And But then in the second one, you don't really get that at all. The second one feels a lot more like a by-the-numbers kind of mm. action film. Yeah, it's, are we going to keep talking about this first? I think we, we can still go between the two, but yeah. just um, to introduce the second one. So the second one came out uh, this mm, year. It came out just, just this week in 2018. <laughs> yep. It's not directed by the same guy. It's directed by Stefano Salim. Lima, yep. um, who I don't know a tremendous amount about. No, no. 
I didn't. No. Yeah, I didn't get around to re- to um, watching any of his other films. No, uh, but yeah, he did direct. Um... It says it says here on <laughs> on good old Wikipedia that he's sort of done a lot of television and sort of crime dramery kind of stuff. It looks like some television in yeah, Italian. He's, he's definitely a TV. And so he's done sort of TV guy. Yeah, and so he's done all sorts of Italian. <laughs> it says here gritty crime drama type stuff. Yeah, but it seems to me this might be the, the one of the first big kind of Hollywood big films he's done. Mm-hmm. Anywho, mm-hmm. it's written by the same guy. Taylor Sheridan. It's got a completely different cinematographer, though. And boy, does that show. A whole different yeah. feel, I think. Yeah. yeah. So um, the, the main men from the first are back, Benicio Del Toro and Josh Brolin. Mm. You don't get Emily Blunt. And we have a couple other big names, I think, that are in this film as well. Mm. But um, those main two guys from the first one are back for the second one again. Yeah. To sort of yeah. But serve what seemed to be a much more major role. I think in the first one, the story really did focus on Emily Blunt almost as an outsider and her point of view of this sort of military tactics operation type thing mm. that she's not really familiar with. But mm. the second one, it really sort of seemed to be like, nah, fuck that. We're just... <laughs> We're, yeah. just, we're just watching Josh Brolin murder hundreds of people now. I mean, she she kind of anchored a lot of the violence and, like, the plot in the first film. Yeah. And getting rid of that just sort of... Because those two characters as well, um, Benicio Del Toro and Josh Brolin, kind of served as a, as a character foil for yeah. Emily Blunt in yep. the first film yep. as well. Yeah. So they don't really have any contrast in this film no and i think anchor is really interesting as a word um because that is how it feels and and a lot of um the second film in comparison to the first feels extremely decentralized mm. from yeah like one mean? person's perspective so like the first film orients itself around her experience and like right. experience of all of these different things and i feel like that definitely kind of... cements your understand your cements the suspense it cements the emotional attachment you have to the action that's going on yeah right? because it, you it humanizes what it. she's doing yeah exactly um, but also it gives you a point of reference because you know what she knows. You don't know anything more than that. The narrative that you get is the experience, mostly the experience that she has of certain situations, which yeah. makes sense to you as a as a viewer. But in this second film, you're just kind of fed these events as they happen. Yeah. And there's no real reason why you're being shown the, the first thing or the next thing. Because like in, in the first one, you get shown events as she learns that they happen or as she yeah. experiences them. Whereas the second one is sort of like, right, now we need to do this. Mm. And and then mm. we need to do this, right. and so, then this happens. It's like, right, well, that doesn't... Yeah. I don't have a good point to lock onto well, for mm. that. So, for example, in the first one, specifically, Emily Blunt's character is never really told what exactly she's doing. She's actively what, not told. Or what the mission is going to yeah. be at yeah. all. Yeah. For like, They keep her in the dark actively. Yeah, for like two-thirds of the film. Yeah. And so half of the mystery for the audience is like, well, what the fuck is actually going on? What are they doing? Why is she even here? Yeah. Um, yeah. And so that unwraps that way. But as you were saying, yeah, the second one is really more just like it lays everything out, and mm. the audience is more like... Like a all-seeing observer yeah. kind of thing. If mm. it's even that, because it's n- not mm. to jump straight into heavy criticism, but the way that they <laughs> did that was just a bit. I, I, I was going to say ham-fisted, but it wasn't even ham-fisted because it's it's just inconsistent. I think it, what yeah, we actually I, get fed. I think it just feels inconsistent in comparison yeah. to the first one because yeah. the like, first one was so different. Why the fuck did they make this film? Yeah, that's a it good seems, fucking it question. Seems <laughs> well, to exactly. Ask. Like that's a really good question to ask. There was no real loose end. Or a no, big cliffhanger no, at the no. end of the first one. Yeah, because it's such a it's such a tight film to begin with, and it's a really solid statement on like the real politic of like American foreign policy or something like that. Exactly. Like it kind of has. A, I think the first one. Um, this isn't a spoiler, but it kind of has a bit of an open kind of ending. But even then, you're right. Like it's sort of you you leave it with a sort of a very specific feeling and a very specific understanding of what the director's trying to do. And you're like, right, yeah. okay. I think it's I've, an, I've it's had an of that open film. ending that doesn't ask to be closed. Yeah. You know? It's just. It's yeah. Like, exactly. Is, you don't need to know anything much more yeah. that that storyline is tied up it's not like a how is shrek shrek and donkey gonna get out of this one <laughs> no it's yeah you're right it's definitely there's no cliffhanger and i think really this again you know i've said this before on, on this podcast but um no sequels think, without cliffhangers that's our rule right well no sequels are without prospective money to be made can i, I just is, is really the don't get you've, <laughs> you've got to shoot these mexican civilians that was good we're going to Mexico. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Juarez, Ronke. Oh, fuck. I'd pay now so fucking... much money to see a Sicario Shrek crossover. <laughs> we um... need a path cleared across the border, Ronke. <laughs> Anyone there, we're driving straight through him. <laughs> uh, oh, have you heard fuck. the story about when Mike Myers was recording the dialogue for that? He was doing some 
fucking Scottish kind of accent. And halfway through the film, he'd accidentally he recorded all his lines and didn't realize he'd accidentally changed accent. Like nice. <laughs> halfway through recording them all, so they had to go back and do it all again. And no one noticed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know. It was like a gradual thing, or it gradually shifted from Probably. Like Scottish to And then they to listened nothing. to one, and then they had to go back and do another line, and they were like, yeah. "Oh fuck, man, it's totally different." <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think Chris yeah. Farley was originally going to be the voice of Shrek and wasn't yeah. even doing a Scottish thing. So that was just like the Mike Myers rocked up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, right, you Scottish. Like, fuck, Mike. Can I can't... you just be normal for fucking once in your entire life? <laughs> yeah, I've listened to the the Chris Farley Shrek lines reading. Yeah. And it's just like, it doesn't make it it's better. Not the same. Like it, yeah. But I don't know. Like, how do you improve on Shrek? Like, yeah. it just is. It's perfection. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. It begs nothing more. So we were talking a bit about... So the, the plot the plot of the first one is kind of just trying to find the the cartel boss guy and sort mm. of tracking down these drug dealers. The plot of the second one is kind of totally different. The plot of the second one orients itself more around the idea of migrants being smuggled across the border by cartels. Yeah. So yeah. these migrants perhaps starting terrorist activity in the US, which does sound well. a lot more related to modern politics. Yeah. So I think what you missed out on, Andrew, before... Like, oh, yeah, because I, I got there perfectly on time and missed absolutely <laughs> yeah. nothing. Yeah. Um, the first couple with, of scenes. Yeah, it was... <laughs> So the film opens, and that's that's another thing talking about how unanchored this second film is, is that it opens with like a solid five to ten minutes of just like things happening before you even see Josh Brolin or... Yeah, right. I didn't mind the opening. Benicia. I thought the opening was kind of cool. Yeah, yeah. Um, like, it's just funny how they introduce this plot thread of ISIS terrorists being smuggled into America by... Um... That fills in a huge gap for me. It does. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Right. Yeah. And so... Yeah, yeah. That at so all. literally... I just like, caught the first it's... scene where they're like an explosion in a supermarket. Yeah, yeah. And so, then they were like, yeah. right, we're Sorry. going after the cartels. I'm like, I don't really understand <laughs> where Sorry. we are here. Listeners, take five for a second while we explain the fucking movie to Andrew Yeah, here. sorry. <laughs> Should have watched it. What was happening was... Yeah, yeah. No, well, it, it opens with illegal immigrants running across the American border and this helicopter is like chasing them and they all kind of stop and put their hands up and then one um, illegal immigrant starts like running off like away by himself and then these cops run after him and then like it kind of cuts to a close-up and you can see he's kind of Middle East and... <laughs> And then he just has like a fucking detonator in his hand, and you're like, "Fucking hell!" Right? Of course, like, yeah. Of yeah. course, it's gonna go this way. Yeah. And then no, and then I oh. thought it was really funny because then he like, yeah, he blows himself up, and then <laughs> sorry, but what was the funny bit? No, like yeah, right after that, it like cuts to the next day, and they've like cordoned off the the self detonation area, and they in like there are a couple detonates again. Yeah, and there are a couple. Of, there are a couple of cops who just like walk over and then just see like three prayer rugs as if that's like his <laughs> yeah, calling yeah, card yeah, or yeah, some yeah. shit. <laughs> yeah, yeah like, where did they go from? Like, they like set them up, run back, and then run across the border. Yeah, that's so yeah. fucking like racist as well. Like, yeah. he didn't it, have as if it was like an Italian person just like, oh, they left like bowls of spaghetti. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Cannelloni. Yeah. Yeah. Still warm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's just fucking dumb. Yeah. It's like the, the phone rings in the office and they pick it up and it's just like one of the bells in the church just going off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, I kind of wish you like, saw that. I knew it. I, yeah. I wanted to yeah, like a real. Like, I missed out. That was Damn. the biggest fucking eye roll. And then, yeah, then yeah. you walked in after that and some more, like, ISIS terrorists blew themselves up in a supermarket as well. Oh, yeah. so that was loose, like, loosely connected at best. Well, no, the, well, the, no like, the idea was they showed you one terrorist coming across the border and blowing himself up. Okay. And the, the idea was all these other people are terrorists that have come across the border from Mexico. As someone who and did so, not experience that, I feel like it would have been more emotionally impactful. <laughs> if <laughs> This is beef station gold right yeah. here. I feel like it would have been more emotionally impactful if the story <laughs> if the story that we'd been fed from the opening scene of the film had led to the same explosion that they needed to watch in the well, boardroom like that's well, I, why no, do they need I mean, to, all that does is that 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 takes that one person who managed to flee across the border and was a terrorist and makes it I guess they're trying to give it a sense of like multiplicity and scale and say. Well, like, I think that's what they were going for. Is the idea it's happening here, it's happening here, it's happening here. Mm. Yeah, but the idea being that it do might you feel be like of... it, that was an effective way of doing that, or do you well, think you would have rather? Because like, uh, if if I if I had to try and estimate like if what that would have looked like if it had the tone of the first yeah. film, I feel like we would have gotten that human story well, up not... to that point, yeah. and that would have led to the next thing happening well, that's... instead of like an isolated vignette. That yeah. then is like this happens a lot, and then well, 
Well, I think what it was trying to show was, look, there's this one guy that there was one of these terrorists in this border crossing, and there are still more that are still in America. Yeah, so it yeah. was kind of showing it's an epidemic. There are all, all these waves of border crossings. There are these guys getting across the border, mm. which brings the urgency to the Josh Brolin mission of like, we have to now track down where these guys are coming from, who's letting these ISIS terrorists in from wherever the hell to Mexico to then cross the border into the US. Yeah, right. So it kind of added to this sense of social urgency. <laughs> which is a loose end that's tied up in about the first 10 minutes of the film. Yeah. <laughs> Like when you're talking about how villain of may have like provided a, I thought you were talking about the villain in the film. No, 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 no. <laughs> um, he may have provided like the human angle to that story, but I also think villain have probably edited uh, Taylor Sheridan's screenplay in for the, the first second film for the first one, right? Like a yeah. bunch, because yeah. I feel like there must have been a bunch of stupid shit that yeah. didn't get past Villeneuve in the first film that yeah. did get past in the right. second film. So just film. to be right, clear, so the stupid shit we're talking about with the border crossing is in the second one that Villeneuve did not direct. Yes. yes. Yeah, great. Yeah, yeah. I feel like David Fincher with like Aaron Sorkin, like sitting down <laughs> yeah, and going so through his script and being like, why is this line script. here? Oh. Why is this line here? And stuff yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah. Cool story with David Fincher and Aaron Sorkin mm. was Aaron Sorkin had some... <laughs> he, yeah, he sat down with him, got him to cross out all the lines of script, and was like, "Why is this line here? Why is this?" That's, you no, know, in awesome. the social in the social network, I think Aaron Sorkin had some fuck off big script that was like 160 mm, yeah, pages long yeah, or whatever. That and, doesn't sound like Aaron Sorkin. <laughs> and the studio didn't believe that it would get down under two minutes. Yeah, and so they sat down and were like, "All right." Aaron, read the script out loud. Sit here and fucking read the script the mm. way you hear it in your head. And he read he read it while they were recording it, and the recording came out to an hour and fifty nine minutes. Yeah. And so then on set there would be performances where um fucking I don't remember Zuck yeah. and the rowing guy would be going through scenes together, and they'd be like, "That was a perfect scene, but when Aaron read this, it was five minutes, and that was six minutes and fifteen seconds. So speed it up." Yeah, Aaron Sorkin's <laughs> and like, they did, and they make a film. Yeah, and they didn't have to cut a single line of dialogue before after they decided on the final script. They didn't. They yeah. didn't end up having to cut any scenes or anything for Social Network. Aaron Sorkin's like amazing. flipping through his first draft, and he's like, <laughs> "Fuck, I was on crack for most of this. We don't have this huge subplot of <laughs> the characters going to a, a casino on another planet." I'm impressed that I wrote twenty thousand lines of dialogue while on amphetamines. But yeah. I to do it. yeah, I'm surprised the fucking Apple Teeny scene still stayed in. There are a lot of. I, I every time I watch that film again. Every time I, you watch the Social Network again? Well, I've seen it a couple of times, probably, <laughs> and I remember every time just being like. Fuck, I forgot that this entire bit was in the film. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like, so it makes you wonder what, what they fucking cut out of the script. Yeah. If everything they left in so, was still there. Yeah, I feel like the Villeneuve was probably Doing a, good, a good pair with right. um, yeah. with Taylor Sheridan in the first film. And then, yeah, yeah, he just, I think, yeah, he probably didn't have a lot of resistance for this second film. Mm. I haven't seen Sons Enough, of Anarchy. Yeah. Did, this, did Sons I haven't of seen Anarchy. it either. Right, okay. <laughs> right, okay. I just feel like it's a fucking meathead TV show. I'm sorry to any fans <laughs> yeah. out there. But I've I'm heard just, people speak well of it. I can kind of call it a meathead TV show, but I just started watching The Sopranos. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah respect. Yeah, yeah, finger on the pulse of pop culture there. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, well, you were talking about colla- uh, collaboration between the writer and the director. I think mm. something interesting is the difference in cinematography between the two films. So in the first one, we had mm. Roger Deakin, that guy we were talking yeah. about that did all the cinematography with the Coen yeah. Brothers and Blade oh, Runner and all that. What's this um, guy's name? Don't remember. He did. Um, the he did. did he's... the cinematography for the next one. So for the second yeah. one, it was the guy. That I think he's most famous for doing cinematography for parts of the. Caribbean, Caribbean movies, which I guess is fine. Yikes! Like, yeah, Ugh. I mean it's fine, but like I've never watched one of those and be like, "Oh, that's a, that's an amazing shot." No, like the last two films of that trilogy. Sorry, no, yeah, the the original trilogy are just muddy as hell. The, yeah, so the the last two in the original trilogy. Yeah, I don't yeah, count right. anything past. The no, third. Yeah, <laughs> anything that's um... anything past the first film, really. <laughs> like. <laughs> That's yeah. just dog shit. Yeah. Um. Yeah. <laughs> right. So um, so the second film, I don't think, has very special cinematography. But interestingly, there was an interview where Roger Deakin was talking about his sort of influences for the cinematography in this first one. Talking, mm. for example, about how they really cared about the authenticity and filming things naturally and very accurately. Mm. And so, for example, when they had this, they had this sequence where the, all these military people are doing a raid through this like series of caves and tunnels and things. And all of that's done in night vision and like with heat, yeah. heat vision. And it's yeah, so yeah. cool. Mm. And he said specifically, He's like, yeah, well, I did that because you often get in other action movies, not to shit on them, he said, like these sort of moonlight night shots Mm. where the camera is just like a normal camera. It's not a heat vision or a night vision camera, but everything is sort of weirdly, very brightly lit from the moon. Yeah. Which is funny because that literally exactly happened. Yeah. 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 Every night shot. And I was like, "Mm, Benicio is very well lit from the front. Exactly. Every night night shot was exactly the kind of shot that the the Roger Deacon in the first one said he didn't really like because it wasn't very realistic. Yeah. Yeah. I think like it, it it does show that like I don't think the second film 
was really very much related to the first film in anything other than the no. fact that they could get Benicio Del Toro back again. Yeah, just another thing about um, Roger Deakins' cinematography as well. He had some really... There are some really stunning aerial shots in the original yeah. film and it kind of the one the, the, when they're, they're driving through the favelas um, I think it's is that like at the start of the film that's all, there's yeah. also one in the second film unfortunately yeah 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 but yeah I feel like that's it I don't know what were you going to say when the, when the um, camera pans up and you see this huge slum stretching out everywhere I mean that, that was absolutely incredible yeah. It huh. get, yeah but I think like those aerial shots really projected like a character onto the topography of like like the geography of the film gave you a sense of that and then it also gave you a feeling of I get yeah like a drone presence or something like that yeah 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 that it's right. a kind like of like this. distant surveillance mm. yeah which is interesting because I think I feel like they really leaned into that more in this second one yeah they really went with that like so much of the film is even not just viewed not just from the camera perspective but also even enabled in the plot by s- basically satellite surveillance yeah. 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 yeah and like drone surveillance that is <sighs> just a i don't think fucking realistic at all because like oh i don't know well maybe but the the every time i get a satellite shot and it's not like shaking because the <laughs> every fucking, time yeah. it looks like they mounted a red camera on a on a, on a drone and yeah fired on, a, it up. on a drone <laughs> that was like and then like hyper stabilized the footage so yeah, that it's literally yeah, not yeah, moving at all yeah. it's like it's a fucking satellite and the earth is moving at however many thousands of kilometers an hour i don't mm. think it's going to be perfectly still man <laughs> I don't, yeah, and in video in real time as well, where they can pinpoint accurately locate someone in the passenger yeah. seat of a fucking car there, yeah. there was with like, a satellite. There was a lot mm, of I that kind of like Blade Runner style, like zoom, enhance, get the reflection off that and that and that and go yeah. and get in there and track that car now and... So yeah, something that's really interesting about I felt both of these films, and that I'm I'm asking the same question, but I feel like for different purposes, <laughs> is like these kind of films, and uh, you know Hurt Locker did it as well, and, and mm. a lot of these kind of things yeah, yeah. where you're is, any, basically anything where you're delving into either a military foray or like a top secret kind of classified environment is what would this conversation actually be like in real life? And it's like, hard that we have no idea, but yeah. that still somehow the way it's depicted gives you an impression of like, oh, this is totally not realistic, or this well, feels yeah. realistic. And So I think yeah. well, it was interesting because like in the first, they, they, they both, both of these films have this um, boardroom meeting mm. at the start of each of them. And it's actually really, it was really interesting for me to compare because the first, <laughs> not board meeting, but the first meeting in the first film, is where the the main character is literally seated outside the meeting for the predominant amount of it and is not included or privy to the conversation that undergoes within. So you're left Mm. as the audience being like, well, what are they talking about? And then she gets to go in there and they're basically just like, we need you to volunteer for this thing. We, We can't really tell you anything about it or won't. And then, oh yeah, know, that's interesting. Yeah, and then yeah. they take the opportunity to characterize Josh Brolin as someone who wears thongs to a mm. meeting. Like, yeah, they, they, it's just a really subtle nod. Yeah. Before we get into the thongs, because I love that aspect of his character. Oh yeah, <laughs> I forgot yeah. that was consistent. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> I th- I thought the really interesting thing about Emily Blunt's character being stationed outside a meeting and being basically told to volunteer for a program, and then at the end of that film, spoilers. Uh, Benicio Del Toro breaks into her apartment at the end of the film and like forces her by gunpoint to sign a waiver. That was so interesting. I got a bit on saying that. like so, everything in this mission was done by the book. Yeah, when so, it clearly fucking hadn't been. Yeah. So like the entire film is basically like centered around coercion by the like the United yeah. States government, even of its like own agents. As and well. it's like it's a total <laughs> subversion of using you know bureaucracy as a as a that's been corrupted and is used purely as like a means to an end yeah. you know where it's kind of like I thought it was that that scene where he's coercing the signature at gunpoint is mm, like yeah. well why do you even need her to fucking sign the thing then you know, you know she, why do you need her to signature? give the appearance though. because yeah. yeah exactly it's so that they can mm. refer to it as a safety mechanism and mm. say well look we got the well, paperwork yeah. you know that, um, but it's no it's interesting I, I felt like the whole the point of the first film was like bureaucracy is no longer serving the purpose that it was once intended to serve mm. it's yeah. just become this totally inverted process that for some reason and still happens mm. for the press or the media or publicity or whatever. So. Well, I think it's exactly what you were just talking about. The idea of the purpose of what this operation is they're doing. Because mm. Josh Brolin is clearly a very principled guy who, to some degree, cares significantly about the fact that these cartels are distributing illicit illicit drugs and he wants to track these criminals down. So He's a, he's a war on drugs kind of guy. Well, he's a Reagan well, era I mean, kind of... Ma- mm. Maybe, yeah. But like it, it's like he's clearly motivated to some degree by some idea of the respect for the law or some sort of innate kind of sense of conscience but it's he's an interesting character in that he's willing to sacrifice all normal moral principles and codes mm. in order to achieve what he wants he's like I've got to kill, find these cartel guys and track them down so I'm prepared to kill any number of other people and 
fuck anyone else over and yeah. break all these moral codes mm. in order to be able to achieve that. Well, it, I, I feel like Josh Brolin in the first film would disagree with Josh Brolin in the second film. You reckon? Because, you reckon yeah, it's not I consistent? So. Yeah, 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 no, I'd agree. Because I, agree, I think really. like uh, <laughs> as much as um as much as Josh Brolin in the first film is willing to like subvert morality and 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 to view that like there's more than one kind of morality in the second film, they go in harder on the I was just following orders thing when they're having that meeting at the start with all of the generals and stuff mm. or whatever, whoever the fuck. You never actually find out anything. <laughs> oh man, just dudes in uniforms. <laughs> that fucking man. scene was so <laughs> stupid. Oh my man. god, it was terrible. But like when he gets told by those people, he's he genuinely asks questions that are as dumb as like he's meeting like what, U.S. What military officials. Do? Like what do I need to just tell me what what needs to happen? And mm. it's like he's not interested in what needs why anything needs to happen because yeah. he's sort of, like either he knows or he doesn't care. Mm. Yeah. And he's just he's like yeah 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 get the other contextual shit out of the way. Give me instructions, mm. and I'll follow those instructions excellently. Yeah. Whereas in the first one. He's the one that's kind of, it feels a little bit like he's pulling the strings. He has an agenda. And he has that his own motivations. Is, yeah. Exactly. Right, that agenda yeah. is like drugs or fighting the cartels or whatever. Mm. That's, that's um, a, yeah, that's yeah. another problem with the second film is that they pulled the scope out way too much. And then oh, they yeah. literally went to the big brass in Washington and had a meeting with them. Like, yeah. <laughs> that, <laughs> like the whole, that was the president, right? The whole idea. No, no, that was the secretary. Of, of, secretary of defense. Yeah. We never actually yeah, get whatever it was. Yeah. But the whole idea then was that in the first film, He's, his little Josh Brolin's little operation is supposed to be sort of behind the back of the government and achieving mm. what the government kind wants to do of, yeah. kind of on his own terms. But that's, so the, yeah, yeah, that's what I loved about the first film as well is that it sort of, it just introduces you to the peripheries of this like labyrinthine bureaucracy that yeah. is just like completely opaque. Like yeah. you don't really know what's happening. It's a black this. box. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. Yeah. So it's, it's annoying in the second when you're saying that they then show, show you him sitting in meetings with politicians. Yeah, and, and then literally that fucking <laughs> scene right after that where he's like sitting down having like a whiskey with an arms dealer and they're both like sitting on the table with their fingers oh, like Christ. interlocked yeah. being like, I need two drones. Can I just say, I sh- like it, having a, a top, top, top secret, like not even people in the <laughs> top brass <laughs> in a fucking restaurant yeah. isn't cool or suave it's yeah. fucking oafish and, and were, it's dumb and they were yeah. meeting in like a food court with yeah, other guys exactly. talking about their, their like, covert shit it's like what are you doing like i get that you don't want to be followed out if you go for a quiet meeting on the ridge or whatever but mm. which is more likely is it more likely that anyone overhears you in a fucking restaurant or is it more like oh it was just so stupid they, they really like Honestly, that there were there was a lot of shit in the second film. There wasn't much in the first film that was cliched, really. I thought, yeah. Um, but there was so much mm. in this second film that was just like it doesn't you have just that... wanted two guys to be having a dinner and they're cool men drinking their whiskey and yeah, yeah, that yeah, secret yeah. shit. It doesn't have yeah. that feeling of authenticity from the first no, one at all. Absolutely not. And I think that documentary style is really interesting because, mm. like, we actually get in in one of the few conversations where Emily Blunt finds out anything about what they're doing. She's talking to Josh Brolin and the camera is like thirty meters away, and we just hear them. The the foley is like it's off in the distance. Mm. It's it, it's clearly like they might even have recorded from where they were standing from the camera because mm. the voices are quiet. Yeah. We're watching it happen a while away. Yeah. Whereas this is like it's a close, intimate meeting that just feels completely unrealistic. Mm. Like surely someone who is willing to accept ten million bucks a month for giving the military secret technology stuff is going to be more careful than recording in a restaurant. And then they like quiet down their voices when the waitress walks past. <laughs> yeah. Like, Wait, did they? Yeah, the yeah. waitress walks past and they're both like, "Oh, better not talk about the <laughs> fucking military." Shit anyway, back she's... to drones. Yeah, exactly. Anyway, so yeah, there's ten million drones like yeah fuck. <laughs> well, so ridiculous the, so josh brolin is this sort of like laid back cool mm. kind of guy he's kind of bre- he wears these sort of like you know loose shirts and thongs yeah. and he's always got josh brolin oh, said he's always got this shit-eating grin on his face yeah and yeah. he was saying that he he deliberately played it like that and the character is like that because he, he thinks the character's name is matt i think he mm. likes the uh, josh brolin liked the idea that matt is kind of intentionally kind of laid back and breezy and casual yeah. to keep people off their guard mm. um yeah, yeah. true and he's the kind of because because his whole character and his whole arc in the first one is like keeping Emily in the dark and mm. not telling her anything about what's going on. Being and a so nice he, guy, and so yeah. he inherently has to be this nice guy and be very charismatic and be very sort of suave and sort mm. of make sure that everyone's happy with him just being the cool guy and not telling you anything. And so that was the thongs. 
yeah, yeah. Thing and then it was Crocs. I think he graduated <laughs> yeah, Crocs. to Crocs. He graduated to Crocs. Um, he I did think, remind me. I like, think Crocs is a demotion, if anything. Like, <laughs> yeah. No socks, I, though, so. Yeah. yeah, you'll get that. Yeah. But he did kind of, his presence in that, like, as that character, at least in the first film, mm. made me think of, like, a PA, uh, PA teacher <laughs> as well. Really? <laughs> does kind of remind me of a PA teacher a little bit. Like, he's, he's kind of nice, and then he, he didn't if you step me- out of line, he'll... Uh, Really you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he didn't call yeah. me big guy even once, so I can't say I sympathize. Yeah. <laughs> well, Josh Brolin in the first one, I've been so used to seeing him in like weird char- as weird characters recently. Like he was yeah. in Deadpool and the Avengers that he had his hair and I was like, man, that's a convincing wig. And mm. it's like, no, Josh Brolin has hair. And I just yeah. realized I was used to seeing him <laughs> as Thanos with like oh, the bald yeah. head and the purple skin. Yeah, he's popping <laughs> off recently. Yeah. Hey? yeah. Man, how much foundation would they have needed to cover up Josh Brolin's purple skin? <laughs> Looks amazing. No rules this time. I also thought that was an interesting oh, line yeah. of dialogue. Well, there was a lot of cheesy little quips, weren't yeah. there? Like when um, no Benicio rules, just orders. Benicio mm. del Toro is like, "So who are we going after this time?" And Josh Brolin's like, "Everyone." Yeah, and it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah but yeah. no, but who are you going after? He's asked you a fucking question. Yeah, or, or like the, the arms dealer's like, "So what do you need?" And he's like, "Everything." I got... But specifically, I need two helicopters and three... <laughs> well, wait, just coming past, wait, just coming past. Yeah, it's like, shh, 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 act like we're cool. Yeah. I think there was a lot of act like we're cool type shit that made the second one feel a lot less like a cool, different thriller drama yeah. about cops and more just like a fucking cop movie. And Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's still there was still kind of like, I think there's a lot of like tisk tisk in the first film that is, isn't really present in the second film. Absolutely. What do you mean? Well, it's kind of a film with anti-heroes, I guess. Like Josh Brolin in the first film is somewhat of an anti-hero because right. he's like doing this these morally ambiguous morally reprehensible things for like a solid goal yeah in which this... in his mind is moral yeah yeah, yeah yeah but then in the second one it's still sort of tried to situate the entire plot in this kind of weird gray area where like the u.s government is justified to do this sort of stuff because they're trying to i don't know yeah but it just sort of didn't i don't know didn't gel for me as much well one yeah. thing that and i think this like kind of relates is that actually both of these films being based in mexico or at least like strongly oriented around the relationship between mexico and the states it was a lot more nuanced in the first one mm. um and it asked a, a much deeper question of like what what mexico is to people in the states and what the states is to people in mexico but in this second in the second one day of the soldado mexico is just painted as this crime written mm. shithole mm. desert wasteland mm. i think there's a bit of controversy about surrounding both films about that mm. yeah because i was gonna say I, I don't think that like i've studied hispanic cinema all right mm. I genuinely have done a uni course <laughs> in hispanic cinema and um and you do get a much more complex view of mexico as a country mm. in films that are made there by people from Definitely. that place mm. it just makes it feel really oppositional like it, it, it sort of pits mexico against america mm. yeah um, and i'm just not sure i don't know i i want a realistic view of what mexico is actually kind of like in terms of in these situations like this didn't feel like a film that actually explored what it was like for mexican people no. to experience this like w- so okay where one one fucking interesting thing that i think is is kind of uh, illustrates what i'm saying pretty well is at one point in this film they blamed the cocaine smuggling in the country across the border as being directly attributable to 911 so they said because and i'm assuming it's because aircraft security is now much tighter so mm. they're saying right people can't bring drugs in through airplanes anymore they have to bring them in yeah. across the border what so tight the... borders are good for business yeah exactly something like that so yeah. he's saying right this event of 9-11 has really increased the amount of uh of like trafficking across the border of mm. multiple forms and it's kind of like right but why did fucking 9-11 happen man <laughs> um it's because you invaded a fucking country yeah that really yeah, had yeah, nothing yeah. to do with you uh, that's but, like a fucking whole other but in thing, addition right? yeah. yeah so and i feel like they're doing the exact so it's that kind of like <laughs> finally the episode seven we break the real ground and why beef station exists well it's like, it's like yeah that's right we're gonna get right into this shit yeah but i feel like people. this without, is no longer yeah. a film podcast without, <laughs> put that in the title but i feel like they're doing the exact like without even going down that rabbit yeah, hole I, I feel like they're doing the same thing with mexico and they're saying like we're well right well, we've got to act here because the cartels are fucking everything up in that country and yeah. they're bringing all that shit over here 
And it's like, well, what have you done to Mexico mm. that interacts with that or yeah, not yeah, done? Yeah. Because like, if you watch something like Narcos, which actually does a really good job, the TV series, first, mm. first couple of series, does a really good job explaining the exact relationship and role mm. that the States plays in the Mexican and yeah. Colombian yeah. kind of drug trades and stuff. They're not by any means innocent. Yeah. Um, and, and if they didn't view this, like the whole war on drugs thing was really interesting to see as reflected in that. Cause it was sort of like Reagan just sort of stepped in and decided that this was a thing that he didn't like. Mm. Nancy Reagan did that whole, they're killing our children <laughs> thing. Yeah. And then they decided, right, well, we're going to have a war on drugs. And so they made it a war rather than just being this, you know, like, I mean, you can have different perspectives on, on drug treatment, like, you know, as a medical epidemic or whatever. Yeah. So it's kind of like, right, you're asking this question. Or, or, or you're, you're giving us this justification for these actions. Well, we need to stop drugs from coming into the country. We mm. need to stop the cartels. Or we need to stop people smuggling or whatever. But we don't actually really necessarily get a particularly convincing view of why that problem even exists. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Which I think is something that absolutely. really could have been explored a whole well, lot more, probably in both films. I did kind of think, yeah, the biggest thing that I took away from the first film was just like the absolute futility of the drug war. Yeah, absolutely. Like, yeah, it yeah. Did nothing. It's very demoralizing yeah. to watch. And that, yeah, that definitely stuck with me from the first film. Mm. Something I thought about watching the, the second film, the, uh, the whole plot around it being there are Islamic terrorists that are traveling to Mexico to then sneak <laughs> across the border into the US. I thought it was a bit ordinary that we have these Sicario, which they're branding and they're setting up perhaps for a sequel again. Oh, fuck. About I as, as these, hope not. As, <laughs> well, well, see, so they're branding it as these, these cop films about Mexican-American relations and about migrants crossing the border, which I think is a really interesting... It's an interesting, interesting premise for a series of films, and you could definitely get a lot out of that mm. because we don't get a lot of that at the moment. So to then turn the film into like, right, so it is about Mexican migrants crossing the border and everything, but also we're just going to make it about Muslim terrorists now. It's like, Oh, come on. Like, but, they, but it this was could have been for like, yeah. this, for like 20 minutes. Away. Well, yeah. yeah exactly. So it was like, well, this could have been the one film at the moment that isn't just about terrorists from Syria. Mm. No, they were like, right, we got to get the, this is a, a film that involves the American army. We got to get the whole Islamophobia thing yeah, in exactly. and yeah. then we can get it out of the way. Great. We're done with that. This is actually a film about Mexico relations. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I feel like that really did tie back into that. We kind of want this to be a film mm. that feels like it's the Iraq war mm. because it's much easier to get those heuristic cues in people's heads if they're thinking about the war on terror mm. rather than the war on drugs and yeah. they just directly link it by saying right well the US government's going to start classifying I don't know how realistic that was but the US government's going to start classifying cartels as terrorists yeah it was, and, and it was gang members <laughs> as terrorists it was literally mm. like they were going I know this is a film about cartels but from now on when I say cartels I mean terrorists right now yeah. we can have a terrorist movie so I feel like it's interesting <laughs> because they were accusing the US government of doing what I feel they did cinematically which is to bridge the gap between the war on terror and the war on drugs Mm. by just making them the same thing yeah exactly yeah so i feel yeah. like but they did that in the film too and i don't feel like they should get a free pass for necessarily doing that i feel like that was that was a means to an end that they couldn't really justify they so, kind yeah. of overcomplicated the plot in that sense and also feel like for some people watching this film they're just going to be like man that was badass dude <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah definitely when they fucking got them helicopters yeah i gotta look at so many guns yeah. How many guns I got to look at in this film? A lot. There were a lot of guns, and that was cool. That's cool. Guns are cool. To change tack a bit, it'd be bad of us to talk about Sicario without talking about Emily Blunt's character. Yeah, yeah. Because absolutely. I think that that was a really cool part about the fir the first Sicario film that was it was perhaps neglected in the second one. In um, that yeah. she's a really great, strong female character mm. um, that you don't get often in the action movies. But even Emily Blunt was saying like, "Oh, she fucking hates the strong female character label." Because it's like yeah. every female in an action movie or in a comedy or whatever is, you know, like every female is either strong and hard as nails or she's a damsel in distress. Yeah. Or like in comedies, every female is always like she has all the quips for all the men or she's just like weak-willed. Yeah. And Emily was saying that she really liked, and I kind of agree, about how this character is almost genderless. In fact, I think they were going to yeah. cast it as they were going to yeah. cast it as a man originally. Mm. And I think there was there was an interview where they were saying, um, I think Denis was saying. Um, he really wanted Emily to be in it, and the studio was like, "Well, if you make it a man, we'll give you more money." Ugh, and so fuck. it was. She's she was, and she was so good in it, and she was such a compelling character because she was so flawed and complex. And there wasn't, it, there didn't seem to be like an active effort to be like, "Okay, we need a strong female, so give her an assault rifle and yeah, get her kicking down that door." It wasn't Ocean's Eight by any means. <laughs> <No. laughs> yeah, exactly. And I think it was a really, it was really good because she felt complex and real, and again, that kind of kind of genderless which i think is the most the mo the most equal way of 
getting characters in films like that. I also feel she was well, great. Well, you don't you don't have to remove someone. Well, sorry, no, sorry, no, no you're I, right. I, you don't have to. That's not what I meant, though. No. Yeah, exactly. Um, I just uh, mean like you don't, she doesn't have to be defined by her femaleness and be totally like, agree. look, we got totally a, we, we got a woman doing it too. Like it feels yeah, exactly. it feels so fair yeah. and like, so. You don't equal. have to have a scene about her talking about tampons in order for her to be a world <laughs> character. Or well, yeah. One or two. Did it pass the Bechdel test? The first film. Yeah, no, it, it, we totally. I mean, she she okay, barely talks about the her interaction. Own... There's the interaction with um that dickhead from The Walking Dead. I can't remember his name. You, you uh, his name. John Berenthal. John Berenthal. Yeah, which is like uh sorta. It it really does verge. It's on, like a like, love scene that turns into a fight scene. And yeah, wait, yeah, yeah. What what are you defining as the Bechdel test? Or being able to have it's being able to have a conversation without it or like a character's development not relating the, to a man right no uh, it's got to be character a convers- has to it's a female it's a character has to talk with another female character and have it not be about a man oh yeah. i forgot the other female character yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sorry no no I, every yeah. fucking film is passing the backdale test nowadays. well yeah no because a lot of them would just not pass based on the oh. conversation not being yeah. about a dude which yeah. is what i was thinking but no yeah. you're right there are no other women welcome to backdale station episode seven something you were talking before about the scene right at the end of sakari one where Emily Blunt's character is coerced to sign this waiver saying like oh we didn't do any illegal shit and she yeah. really doesn't want to that scene was a real collaboration between Emily and Denis because that wasn't going to be like a big centerpiece scene oh damn um, and then and that's, that's so then another, in the yeah. scene she like breaks down and it's this huge emotional moment for the character mm. um, and it's, it's like one of the it, it's the climax of the film even though it happens towards the end and apparently it isn't that way in the script and, of course it fucking isn't and Denis and, <laughs> yeah, yeah, right? and Denis yeah. Villeneuve Lots of, lots of actors I was watching interviews today were saying that he's so collaborative and yeah. he's so prepared to let actors sort of mess with the film in oh, order to sort of so good. Um, yeah in order to sort of get what they want out of their characters in the film and so he apparently blocked out a whole day to shoot that after he realised that Benicio and Emily weren't really like gelling with what was on the page and so, that, so Benicio and Emily were like sitting down just like doing the scene over and over again and sort of just chatting mm. about stuff and then at some point just flick the cameras on and go that oh damn yeah um, which That's I think so is good. it's fantastic um, and I think that collaboration between Denis and the cinematographer and Denis and the actors is something that's really his what's not presence his absence is really felt in the second one I think for yeah. that reason so what's what's his name again Stefano Solomon there you go yeah it didn't really seem like there was a lot of cohesion just at all no, in the second no, film absolutely um, not every um, villain of film is flawless uh, so one yeah one like really interesting thing form. I've been trying to look up what this fucking film is called for like the last 10 minutes <laughs> um, it's welcome called- back if you want a, a, like a good film about um, the Mexican border crossing process, there's a, a Mexican film called Sin Nombre. Oh, yeah. I've heard that's um, good. Yeah. Or like un- unnamed. I, sometimes it's called. Made in 2009. And it, it kind of actually tracks the entire process from someone. I think someone crosses a US border from Colombia. Mm, so they right. have to go through like the whole of Mexico and shit. Yeah. And you actually get this really like cross-sectional perspective of what it's like to be someone who has to cross the border. And it's, yeah, it's fucking way deeper. So I was, I was kind of hoping when I found out that this was about border crossings mm. that it was going to explore that territory yeah, it doesn't really a lot more and it just doesn't mm. at all also that was directed by a Japanese person so oh, like ri- oh. Kari <laughs> yeah, Fukunaga yeah, yeah. yeah so you don't need to be it doesn't need to be produced by someone from that culture in order mm. to give an authentic reflection. I mean, maybe the script was written by um, yeah, someone yeah, who true. understood it, but um, yeah. yeah, I don't know. It was just a disappointing missed opportunity. One thing I just wanted to cycle back to as well was I was thinking about this Day of the Soldado as I was watching it. and <laughs> That's Sicario 2? Yes. I don't think we've actually said that. Yeah, Honestly, yeah, true. Day of the Soldado. <laughs> this Soldado. would be a lot more truthful if you just dropped the Sicario bit from it and just <laughs> made it called Day of the Soldado. And yeah. it just coincidentally follows on from Josh Brolin. You die, yeah, you die it... a Sicario or you live <laughs> long enough to... Fuck. It did kind of seem like an honest spy film. I will give it that. Yeah, In there, okay. Because it's the US gov- like government basically interfering with other countries. Yeah. Very... <laughs> Like by very covert means, and that's as real yeah. as it gets. Yeah, but also yeah. like covert, but totally not in it in yeah. another way. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, because like then the, the like they involve the, they end up killing like twenty three Mexican police officers, that's true. but they're yeah. dressed as the army, <laughs> so, <laughs> you know. So it's like no, no, that wasn't the that wasn't our CIA guys. That was there were just army dudes there randomly, so that yeah. like you won't ask any questions about it. <laughs> I don't know. Go ask the army as if that's not also us. You know. Yeah, it's very fucking strange. It just got me thinking about the other, all of the other democracies that America's like interfered with, mm. especially like in South America yeah. as well. So I thought that was like an interesting, interesting way to fl- to frame the plot. 
And again, like, <laughs> honest, yeah, but frustratingly shallow. I oh, thought. yeah, absolutely. I would have really liked, because I, I feel like you could make a great movie about, like, w- when you take that transparency mm. that isn't ever there in real life about what goes on in these other countries, because, like, obviously the US is fucking with everybody. Mm. And, you know, Australia probably is too. Like, mm. democracies just do this, mm. but we never find out about it because if they admitted to it, they would have to stop doing it. So, yeah, I think that would be a really strong space to explore mm. cinematically. And I kind of back to my question earlier about like these kind of films I want to know how truthful they are mm. and what that process is actually like because I'd love to know if this was an accurate reflection yeah. of the intelligence process or if this was just like people sitting down and thinking of something that was semi-convincing that it was a lot of yeah. it is filling in the blanks yeah exactly and like how much can you ask people Mm. you know you can go and get information from things that were declassified and you Mm. can talk to people but the second one doesn't feel like they would have gone to that much effort I really think it does feel like like you were saying in Ocean's 8 there's a lot of it's like the the writer clearly wanted this scene and this scene and this scene and this scene Mm. so how can we string these together how can we make it so we get them having an arms dealer conversation in a restaurant and then have a cool little confrontation on a highway yeah it really just feels that they've strung it together Mm. Mm. but I think that is interesting the idea idea that you can have a military a, a film about military military special ops or whatever that feels authentic versus a film about that secret stuff that doesn't feel authentic even though no one in the audience is going to know what really is authentic either way so it really is about how you shoot it and how you present it inherently Sicario 2 has a great compelling storyline the idea that they have to we haven't really spoken about it the idea that they have to sort of kidnap this person and then try and convince the person that was kidnapped that there's someone else and all that stuff the whole Mm. kidnapping plotline of Sicario 2 I thought was cool but they didn't do it really well I don't think the way they executed it paid off just that that cliche of like a bunch of gruff men protecting this like innocent little girl and like yeah, killing yeah. everyone except it definitely, her. It definitely had that also like that leader of the free world US justification perspective. Yeah. Of like, yeah, we're going to yeah. step in and fix things here and we got to get our hands dirty doing it. Like literally yeah. get But we're going to save it. this little girl. Yeah, exactly. Well. Yeah. Who was, by the way, a fucking useless actor in my opinion. Was, oh, she, really? the same, also, was she the same actress also, from the Wolverine film? No, I don't no, think okay. so. Oh. Maybe yeah, not. Maybe I don't. Not. I meant to look it up. But, but also, <laughs> just like, and I feel like sometimes she was okay, sometimes her first bit were, and the bit where she had to like touch her face and was like, oh yeah, I am hurt. That was just like, fucking, fuck you. No, fuck I, you. I think and, in classic shitty Hollywood, I don't think she was meant to have any giant role. No, she was supposed but, to just be like this mannequin sat in the backseat of the yeah, car and was like just not shot for two hours. An actual yeah. chess piece. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Porn. Yes, it yeah. was just meant to be like, if anything, she should have been the anchor of the film. And but, she, and she yeah, could have been, been as evidence, but yeah. no. As evidence, by the Logan where the child is fantastic and yeah. is one of the key parts of the film and a driving point in the plotline and a character that has a tremendous influence on the adults around her. Yeah. She could have done that and, and they could have played it like that or at least had some greater interaction between her and Benicio or whatever. It's she really interesting really. that you bring up Logan because I did for yeah, a I know. fleeting moment think of this. <laughs> um, not because you brought it up but, <laughs> um, but because of what I have to build upon it. Because I did think of Logan at this film because I felt like I was trying to find like what and this is maybe the wrong way to go about watching films always <laughs> but I was trying to find it felt so cliched that I was trying to figure out what stereotypes they wanted to have on screen so that they could shape the character in that way and for um, Benicio Del Toro's character I totally got Anson Chigurh <laughs> from No Country for Old Men mm. they really wanted him to be this unstoppable killer from down south and if he wants you dead you're gonna be mm. and however that happens is up to him yeah right and that's why like the whole him being again spoilers him being shot in the fucking head yeah. and then getting up and continuing Fuck to that, go on. That, yeah, was, that was so Jesus stupid. Jesus fucking Christ. Yeah. Also, you can't have bits... Of, I, I'm, I'm on a tangent here. You can't have bits of someone's fucking brain falling out. And no, then, that, that was no, that was that was that, that was dead. That was dead. Oh, whatever. Yeah, okay. That right, would have been fine. badass. Be, then, yeah, so, yeah. Okay, shot through the mouth. Fine, whatever. <laughs> but then, yeah. So they wanted it. They wanted him to be Anton Sugar and be this like juggernaut that mm. can just like kill you if they want. But they also wanted him to be mm. Logan. But I don't really think where he, was. he has yeah. this guardian presence over this female yeah. character. None of which makes and sense because he's supposed to be using that female character as yeah. a pawn for his own thing. And those two roles aren't compatible because no. the point of Anton Chigurh's character the lack in, of humanity. in The Country for Old Men is that, yeah, mm. he's not human. He's a, he's a bad word, psychopath, mm. yeah. who has absolutely no empathy for anyone. He doesn't understand people, and that's why he uses things like a coin to try and justify his mm. actions. Oh, yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. Um, 
But you can't then tell me that this person has a human streak and that they'll do anything to protect this little girl that reminds them of their daughter. Yeah. You yeah, know? no, that was dumb. That was fucking yeah, dumb. Yeah, and then why and would he want to go and perpetuate this cycle of violence by trying to involve this guy and being a Sicario when he now lacks yeah. any motivation for actually doing that? So at the end of the film, there's like a young Mexican teenage boy who gets initiated into a gang and then yeah. the end of the film and he's all tatted up so we know he's a yeah he's all MS tatted up by the end of the film. he looks yeah. so dumb he looks so <laughs> dumb um but he's and then the final scene is like him opening a door and benicia del toro sitting there and he's like so you want to be a sicario huh yeah and then he like closes the door very like godfather yeah super yeah that oh, whole man. subplot with this so there's a whole subplot going out through this whole film of like this young boy becoming a member of this cartel on a small scale and helping mm. people across the border again i feel like have been excellent yeah could have been great i feel like that whole subplot existed entirely so that they could call the film sicario like benicia del toro almost looked straight in the barrel of the camera and winked and was yeah. like <laughs> Want to be a Sicario, dear? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> which, which would almost be forgivable if the rest of the film had anything to do with that plot line. Oh, yeah. Which it that. just fucking doesn't. Yeah, they're definitely trying to set it up for a sequel. Yeah, um, for sure. I do kind of think the, the first Sicario, and to a lesser extent this one, are kind of counterparts to No Country for Old Men. Yeah. But yeah, the second Sicario is definitely almost like the anti-No Country for yeah. Old Men. Because <laughs> yeah. It's so complex and there it's like it's set in the same region and there's like a similar race dynamic happening as well. Yeah. It's like a film about violence too. But I think it's sort of embracing the moral ambiguity of like all of the violence that these characters are like perpetuating and like... Yeah, it's... um No, I, I definitely think that the morality in this film and the way the film, the first film in particular, approaches morality is really interesting because yeah. they are trying to inherently achieve a law-abiding kind of goal yeah. but through through dodgy kind of <laughs> through like dodgy kind of circumstances yeah. i think it's it's interesting though even describing it as like law-abiding because like i'm gonna pull that like i don't know if this is what the director intended thing but it was very clearly constructed yeah um at the end of the first film can you guys help me with the scene that I'm thinking of? They, they get pulled over on the road. They, one of them says a line like, do you think the people that sent you here are any different? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, 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 right. So, so um, Benicio Del Toro takes a cop car, but it's not a cop. It's one of the cartel posing as a cop. That's I right. Think. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And then he's sort of holding him at gunpoint from the back seat, telling him where to drive and go. And yeah. he's following this other guy in a car. Who is a drug uh, cartel. Who is like a drug cartel right, So that's my yeah. point. You get this scene where you have Benicio Del Toro, who represents like the American hired mercenary. Right, and on the other side of that, yeah. you have a cartel leader, and between those two perspectives, you have someone who's a cop, right? Only in appearance, yeah, and who actually represents this like total again subversion of the bureaucracy that needs to happen, yeah, and this like totally hollow, impotent sense of legality that only exists because it once existed, yeah, right, yeah. and and is just literally being held at gunpoint mm. by another. <laughs> person Mm. another one of these forces to try and have action on the other so it's like it's an interesting thing because it it sort of pitches the law and all of the process of morality and not morality actually yeah morality is kind of abstracted it pitches law as just being caught between warring forces Mm. and when you you sort of think as the law as this like active pursuit of wrongdoing Mm. but i think what's really interesting about the first film is it it says like well that isn't that's not what's happening like the law Mm. isn't the thing that's trying to drive this change the american government and even personal individuals within that structure Mm. have this agenda they push on the legislative aspect of things yeah and then they achieve things through that barrier and then the other side of it pushes back Mm. because police one of the ones who have to try and stop them on the ground you know so yeah i thought it was just really interesting that it pitches it as as being such a such a passive barrier Mm. but um which is what is being a passive barrier the the police and and law so it's interesting that you you would describe characters in this film as being law abiding and trying to follow that because i think it's motivated by the morality which around which the law is constructed yeah but bent and broken as well mm. yeah you know because as soon as they need something well, done that doesn't conform to the law they just sign yeah. off higher authority to yeah. subvert it and it well, doesn't yeah. fucking actually matter at all well i think because yeah, um, the law is made by people and it's broken by people as well yeah well perhaps a bit more in summary now i think that perhaps that might be one of the reasons why the first film is so appealing because it's sort of around the back of the law mm. you watch these people in this small little action hit team and why in the second one the fact that it introduces all this bureaucracy and stuff and mm. introduces and sort of does away with what they established in the first film in terms of like morality and their self-motivated nature of Benicio Del Toro and Josh Berlin's kind of little team 
it kind of ruins it a bit and kind of isn't going for the same spirit as the first one. Yeah, mm. yeah. Because I thought the first one was really great. Yeah, it's great. It's yeah. And yeah. the second one, so I think the first one was a fantastic kind of thriller drama, and I think the second one was more like, I don't, correct me if you guys feel differently, more like a, a fine action movie. Yeah. I felt like the first one isolated its, uh, sorry, not isolated, oriented itself around three or four major events. Yeah. Or like, you know, kind of like defining moments of the film. And it really went in deep on those few, yeah. maybe more than three or four, but you know what I mean? Like it, there were distinct moments that told the story. Yeah. This yeah. film didn't have those. It, no. it wasn't strong in that way. It just no. kind of like meandered through a storyline that had things for the sake of it. And it, the lack yeah. of one focus character that Emily Blunt played in the first yeah, one exactly. definitely really made it, yeah. I think, had that effect. Yeah, yeah mm. for sure. So I, I think definitely if I was going to recommend that, I would say go see the first one. Absolutely. First Sicario on 1 definitely is on Netflix. It, yeah. is definitely yeah. worth Catch a watch. It. It's great. Sicario 2, I, I don't think is worth your while. Uh, I mean, if you if you want to go see any just a fine action movie, that'd be great. I think you'd enjoy it. Yeah. But yeah. I just don't think I enjoy. I would have enjoyed it for the same reasons as I would have enjoyed no, Sicario 1. No, definitely not. Yeah. No, I, I, I agree. Yeah, for sure. It was just kind of simplified too much. It's, yeah. it's simplified yeah. kind of, I guess, the morality and it tried to make the plot way more, more complex yeah so yeah. it's like it was trying to do two things worst of both worlds yeah. yeah yeah if you'd like i've got a little bit of news for you guys that mm-hmm. i've found earlier today oh, they, yeah. they aren't strictly related to what we were talking about just then but i think they're interesting in any in uh, any case I've got yep. something after that you've got yeah. okay cool. great right. um first little bit of news here john kazdan is taking over the writing of the new indiana jones 5 movie that's going to be coming out soon uh-huh. you might recognize john john kazdan andrew from his stellar work writing the solo a star wars story script oh boy yeah so oh, he, that well he written is, and fleshed out film Wait, he is one? now so solo. john john oh, kazdan wrote solo which <laughs> beef station listeners will know we were tremendous fans of so um, he's taking over to sign on to write the fifth installment <laughs> in a fucking exactly. series <laughs> so, so he's taking over um, that project after it was left um, left by David Kep who you might not remember specifically but he wrote Mission Impossible Jurassic the Park first one. the first one of each he, he wrote oh, the original man. Mission Impossible Jurassic Park Snake Eyes the 2002 Spider-Man he's oh, written Indi- he's written Indiana Jones films before he wrote The Crystal Skull which like fine but he's oh, he is according right. to Wikipedia drawn and quartered, then. the sixth <laughs> most successful screenwriter of all time in terms of US box office gross I mean, right. that makes sense. Um, that's he's good crazy. at getting his franchise off yeah. the ground <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. so he's left it and is now has now gotten Jonathan Jonathan Kazdan on board, which I Great. can't say I'm particularly impressed with. Oh, fuck. <laughs> so, so there you go. That's our first bit of news. Second little bit of news I've got here, which I think is funny now, is that um, Marvel is effectively using Tom Holland as their press release machine. Tom Holland has oh, <laughs> accidentally yeah. revealed the title for the new Spider-Man Homecoming sequel. It's going to be called Far From Home. Nice. Um, I didn't have anything about that other than the fact that if Marvel, if Marvel wants to give anything a secret, they shouldn't be telling Tom Holland at this point, right? Yeah. So they either wanted us to know that it's called Far From Home or that's not the title of the film. <laughs> yeah, it's like, it's like <laughs> iPhone the... blueprints are always leaked around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, exactly. Yeah, exactly. But um, I'm so glad that Michael Keaton is going to be in the new Spider-Man film. Is he? Oh, he's playing going back to superhero the... films. Oh uh, yeah, he's playing the Vulture again. Again, oh man, I think, I think they, they announced that Mysterio is going to be in this one. Yeah, but I, I wish I could remember who was going to be cast as that. But I definitely remember they getting Jake Myster- Gyllenhaal was in talks for it. Oh, fuck, oh that'd, that'd be, be good. good. He's great. So Stefano Salima, who directed Sicario Two, Day of the Soldado, um, Day of the Soldado. <laughs> um, he's going to be directing the, uh, the movie treatment for Call of Duty. The Call of Duty for <laughs> Oh, well, which I think makes a lot of sense. That's so sincerely, fitting. Yeah. Oh my so, god! I only found it like halfway through, well, like while we were talking about. Yeah, this. sincerely Jesus though. Jesus Christ! I think that Sakari Two would be a great Call of Duty film. If the, yeah, so he'll, he'll be good. Call of Duty yeah. Day of the Soldado. It, it actually that is wow. makes a lot of sense. It felt tomato, exactly tomato, like potato, watching potato. the plot of uh, one of the later Call of Duties because yeah. like if you watch something like <laughs> fucking Advanced Warfare or whatever, one of the recent, like one of the more yeah. soulless Activision Call of Duties, it feels like exactly like this film is. It's like you wanted there to be a helicopter crash scene, so there was a helicopter crash scene yeah. regardless of whether or not it fit well in the plot. Yeah, like. Yeah, that yeah. makes a lot of sense. Yeah, Fuck. a nuclear bomb could have gone off in Sicario. In Sicario too, too. yeah, exactly. Like, of course, yeah. Right. <laughs> and, you know, uh, I've got another one just related to an app that we did. The writers of A Quiet Place are adapting Stephen King's The Boogeyman. Ooh. So, yeah, did he invent that? I've always heard the, the phrase boogeyman as like part of like our... You know, Sorry, Stephen guys. King, did he invent The Boogeyman? <laughs> 
Yeah, is, is that, that no? Right, it's like centuries I'm not very, old. I'm not very familiar <laughs> with the movie. Sure. Yeah, but have you seen him? He's got isn't Barbie <laughs> wrinkles as a prune? <laughs> Stephen King is actually like the the, the immortal one. Oh man, I think right. it makes a lot of sense for Stephen King to be a Cthulhu-esque like old one. You know? <laughs> yeah, he don't just... don't say his name again, or we're going to summon yeah, him out right. of the mirror. Said it twice. <laughs> I just hate that he's on Twitter now and I just see him. Twitter just ruins so many people for me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Terrible. I was I was thinking about the Beatles the other day. And yeah, how, boy. Um, yeah, <laughs> oh, I so thought was you'd Oscar. like this. Oscar. <laughs> yeah. I was thinking about the Beatles. Was that the end of the... <laughs> um, I was thinking about the Beatles and mm-hmm. just how Which all of their careers like diverged at like the end of the Beatles and how that could yeah. be like the epilogue of a movie because like... Ringo's like the dumb one, so of course, like John Lennon gets shot in 1980. Yeah. Paul becomes like a successful solo artist. George explores his spirituality, it's and off, George fucking Ringo went off the radar like, and was a gardener for like 15 years. Yeah, yeah. and ended up being the voice of like the narrator. <laughs> on <towards laughs> the that's a, sounds like something out of fucking Warcraft. Yeah, yeah, it does. Doesn't it really it? does. Oh, oh Christ! I can. I just imagine like they got a lot of um. If they if the Beatles had had cell phones, they would have like. Picked him up, oh. seen that it was Ringo calling, and then just like put it down <laughs> yeah. and be like, I'll call him back. Later. Yeah. <laughs> like all three of them. Do you reckon yeah. if John Lennon had Twitter, he'd be exactly like Liam Gallagher? Just yeah. Firing off at everyone. Oh, he would have yeah. been like getting into re- like feuds with the <laughs> yeah. Gallagher brothers back in the yeah. 90s. Yeah. yeah. It would have been, been like been the... must follows are Trump, Kanye, Liam Gallagher, and yeah. John Lennon. Oh, he, no, he, oh, just... he would have definitely done something with Kanye. Yeah. yeah. For sure. He would have been one of those people where like if someone criticizes their music on Twitter, they like fucking reply to them and they're like, what have you done? <laughs> yeah. Is that is that about all the time we have That's on Beef Station this week? Man. Great. Well, thanks for joining us for episode seven of Beef Station. Thanks Come again next. Oh, thanks for coming yeah, on, Patty. We'll have you on again soon, I'm sure. That yeah. was special guest Patty J. Look forward to him coming back again. We've got a new Facebook page up now, so find yeah, us on do. Facebook. We're That's Beef on... Station. Yeah, yeah, we do have a... like us on Beef Station. Email us. That address for emails uh, is stationpod at gmail.com. Wonderful. Thanks for joining Send us. Send them pics of your butts. All thirty of you. She got a butt pic <laughs> I've been Oscar. I'm Andrew. Pat. Have a good one. In the summertime, when the weather is high, you can stretch right up and touch the sky. When the weather's fine, you got women, you got women on your mind. Have a drink, have a drive, go out and see what you can find. If a daddy's rich, take her out for a meal. If a daddy's poor, just do what you feel. Speed